Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hi, we're back again. This is Human Factors Cast, maybe with a new episode. I've lost count at this point. The number will be in the title. It's January 25th, 2024. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello. Today we got some not so fun stuff to talk about tech layoffs. Let's all get excited about the, yeah, no, not so much. The state uh, of UX. I don't know. There's some topics that we have here. Got CES that we can, we talked about last time that we can look at some of the best of CES. Yeah, we absolutely need to do that because we need to. Alec Cleanser. We need to look at gadgets. We need mm-hmm. to look at cool bits of text. We talk about the, do we do the, the slightly depressing stuff first and then go into the fun stuff? Yeah, let's get that stuff out of the way because there's a lot to cover with that. I feel like this is our in-depth topic for tonight. The CES stuff is like a fun palate cleanser type of thing that we can focus on in just a little bit because, yeah, I think there's definitely a lot to cover with the tech layoffs, with the state of UX. We have a lot of we have a lot of stuff to cover. <laughs> it's a it's an in-depth conversation here that we're trying to have. And speaking of conversation, if you want to dial in tonight, you can do that right here. There's a little QR code that says you can be a live caller. Let us know what your thoughts are on the whole tech layoff situation on the CES stuff. You can call in at any time. There's a little chat bubble in there. You can tell us what you want to chat about and we'll screen your call before you come on. We'll give you a heads up and all that. So please, if you want to be a live caller, it's right there. If you want to support the show, there's a little other QR code down here. We're on Patreon, and that all does go back into the production of the show. And there's some other stuff, too. If you go to our website, humanfactorscast.media, there's a little microphone in the bottom right-hand corner that you can use to be a voicemail. You can leave a voicemail for us. We'll probably get to those next week. But if you want a live call, that's up here. So now that's all out of the way, I think... Maybe we set the stage here with the types of things that we're going to cover tonight, Barry. I don't know about you, but that to me seems like the best place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there's an email going around by Mr. Jacob Nielsen. And he does this sort of breakdown of the state of UX and how 2023 was a bad year for UX future's bright. There's also a couple of other, like I said, sources that we're going to reference throughout the duration of our conversation tonight. There's a lot of news that just broke actually hours before we went live. Activision, Blizzard, Microsoft just laid off another, a lot of people today. I think it was like 1,500. It was a lot. And looking at some of the numbers versus 2023 versus 2024, It's not all great news. So uh, I understand there's a lot going on here. There's also some stuff to talk about. Another post going around here on LinkedIn about the the whole expertise issue in UX. And so I think a good place to start here is maybe with a recap of what happened in 2023. Okay. So this is where Jacob Nielsen is... Basically, he's rounded up what he thinks of what 2023 was and where 2024 is going to be. He highlights there's been some bad news for UX to Crotum. Salaries are down 
compared with 2022. Job openings for UX researchers were down 73%. That's nearly like three quarters. That's huge. Job openings, UX designers, uh, was down 71%. Again, a significantly high number. Thousands of UX professionals have been laid off from seemingly good jobs at tech giants like Google, Facebook, stroke meta. Um, and it, but he's, he highlights that actually, is this gloomy? Is this bad? Well, he seems to suggest that this is a market correction rather than an apocalypse, as he puts it. He suggests that in 2022, was the, the job market was absolutely red hot and everyone was hiring UX designers, UX researchers, like, like, they, were going, like they were going out of fashion. And so therefore, there was a massive blip in salaries, in roles, and that was just unsustainable. So what we're seeing now is just that, that the correction from 2022. Whilst that sounds logical and it sounds good, it's obviously no, there's, it doesn't help the people who've been, who are being made redundant and not being able to get the roles at the moment, but it does make sense. We've been saying on this program now, probably about for the past 18, what, 18, 24 months, that, that the UX role was quite fashion. It was quite a fashion, almost a fashionable role to be in. When you look at the difference between UXHF and things like that, it was trendy. It really, and it still is. So maybe this has got a bit of that around it as well. So yeah, I think he highlights that 2023 compared to 2022 was rubbish. But as you've highlighted now that going into 2024, we're possibly not seeing the uptick for quite a while. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's uh, Microsoft. Activision. Yes. Here's the headline from The Verge. Microsoft lays off 1,900 Activision Blizzard Xbox employees. Um, this is just the latest. This is We're talking about this because it's late breaking today. I do want to bring up a... Uh, it'll always be Twitter to me, but X post here by Rami Ismaili, or Ismail. Sorry about the pronunciation there if it's wrong, but uh, they say, I just ran the numbers with today's Activision Blizzard Microsoft layoffs added in just 25 days of 2024. We're already at over halfway to the total layoffs of all of 2023. So far in 2024, we're at 5,600 versus 10,500 in 2023. So yeah, tech is having its moment here with the, this correction, with this bubble. And I think it's important to bring up, at least from our perspective, with human factors, with UX, and what's going on from our end. I think there's a great post on LinkedIn here by Charles Morrow came out. This was posted five days ago. So since the last time we were on, talking about what happened to UX and our positioning within the tech space and what's going on with corporations. And I'll just quickly recap this. The full post is, is definitely worth going to and reading. But essentially, what's happened here is there's this reliance on UX, and it left a five-year gap in product development, which we're now seeing a reliance on AI. And this will link back to Jacob Nielsen's sort of future-looking post here in just a minute. So I like that I like that we're covering this now, but I think what's happening here, and Charles says this, is that Google's jettisoning, jettisoning entire hardware divisions, including UX groups, in one cut, thinking that AI is the solution here. 
He goes on to say that there's over the last five years, there's been several hundred thousand UX trained individuals thrust into the marketplace by things that we've talked about here on the show, Barry. UX boot camps, UX seminars, and other forms of unvalidated training, most of which lack a strong and meaningful connection to underlying human factors science. And we've been critical in the past of this this boom in boot camps. Um, How many times have we seen the, it came from saying, I attended a boot camp and that, and why can't I get a job, et cetera, et cetera. So this kind of, this, does reiterate a lot of the things that we've been talking about. Yeah, he goes on to write, some leading usability experts and their firms have profited from this type of catch and release and are also to blame for the current employment meltdown in UX. There's a lot more to that post. I think those are highlights there. And I agree. I think we've talked about this before, that the UX, the trainings, those are not nearly enough. They're great supplemental programs. And even Google is guilty of this too they have their ux courses and a lot of it has been training it's almost like patching the the symptoms and not the the underlying cause there with understanding human factors with understanding engineering systems engineering human psychology those types of core structural foundational things and and you're teaching people how to i don't know do design i think because later on in that article, it does say that it says social media made UX expertise seem easy to learn and approachable. And that's just made the problem worse because it's almost been seen as, oh, this is easy. Anybody can get, get into it. It's obvious. It's common sense. And so lots of people have been jumping into it as thinking it's the almost the next dot com or pick another boom and bust industry to do something because people think that doing UX is easy. UX and HF, I think we've discussed quite a lot, are not necessarily exactly the same thing. They have significant overlap, but they both have their individual things. But one, I think what where we're at the moment is we've been assuming that one can exist without the other. And I think many HFers know that UX exists, but there's a lot for, of UXers don't know that HF exists, which I think goes back to the point you were making. It's the top-down approach that UX brings is really good, but it needs to be paired with that bottom-up approach of HF to give it that foundation and the to give it the roots into good things. I'm, I don't think we should be that surprised to see what's going on. I'm surprised at the numbers. I'm surprised that they're that we are we're looking at significant chunks of the industry, and maybe we should have seen this coming. But yeah, I think that there's a there's just a lot at the moment, particularly given what happened in 2022. Yeah. And I think this is is an interesting problem for us to solve because when UX is linked to human factors, that then reflects poorly on human factors professionals when maybe these UX professionals who have just engaged with one boot camp or one training seminar and then got all the rest of the training on the job, when they're not doing their due diligence with research or their patching solutions or just going off of conventional standards that maybe haven't been researched in depth as to why or why not that's the appropriate solution for the problems that they're trying to solve. And so I think there's some interesting things that we can do from 
our profession standpoint, right? I think there's a lot of things that we can look into from like an organizational outreach perspective, right? What can Chartered Institute do? What can HFES do? What can IEA do to reach out to UX organizations or to UX professionals and embrace them and say, hey, look, like we we understand that you you don't have the same foundational knowledge in human factors and psychology, but we want to be there for you. We want to provide this accessible, these accessible resources from a training and and resource perspective. So I, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do. <laughs> It's also worth having a going back into what the both of these articles have said now, and putting a lot of the blame squarely on the on AI, or more specifically, the potential for AI. The, your Googles and things like that have, have turned around and said, well, actually, this UX stuff, this HF stuff, can all be solved by the equivalent of your chat GPTs. Can use AI to deal with all this stuff that 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 we find difficult because everybody finds HF, the, the whole dealing with users difficult. That's why we do what we do because we, we recognize it's difficult and we provide solutions. We're already finding that UX, uh, sorry, that AI is not a bad starting point, but it's not the tool. It, it can't deliver what we deliver and what UX expertise can't deliver. I think maybe there is also an element here of let's ditch everybody, AI will rule the world, oh, maybe it won't. And I think that will then almost become a correction of the correction maybe the second half of this year. Bold prediction right there. Yeah, I think uh, let's. We're, we're just two voices here in this whole mix, and we brought in a couple other voices. I want to bring in more voices from the chat here. Neil from YouTube. Yes, I'm all for finding alternative training paths for toolkits, so long as they actually provide the, leaner, or the learner with uh, knowledge, skills, abilities that they will need to perform jobs and tasks. Agree with that. I think there's sort of two. Um, I, I think of this as, as two pronged approach, where you have maybe the uh, the systems people who are focused on the higher order solutions to a problem within tech, within defense, within medical, where whatever the domain. You have these people who are are focused on the end user and the basically the solution right? A solution architect, if you will. And then you have the practitioners who could have one of these leaner toolkits that could be trained with with a boot camp or whatever, still learning the skills, but maybe it's more logistical, like doing the user interviews or setting up a, a research study, like sort of those types of mm-hmm. things yeah. where you still have the skills and understand the foundations of how to do those things, but maybe the sort of higher order solutions to the problems then lie with those who are classically trained in human factors or have better, more expertise in the subject. I think it's an interesting problem to solve, especially because something that we talked about at HFES this year, last year, was accreditation. And what does that do for our industry, right? We talked to the folks at BCPE and how do we get, what does the accreditation look like and why don't companies know about it? And what's the approach to adopting a standard like that for UX 
that is comparable to something that product managers or agile professionals might have in their toolkit, right? What is the approach? And so it's still an interesting problem to solve, especially because I feel like in, in some respects we're, we've gone too far and, and it's. No, there's a fair point here because there is not, we could, we're making out here that the HF world is also the HF domain is all being all embracing and saying, oh, it's all right, UXers, come and join us. No hard feelings and that, sort, that type of thing. There is a significant number of people out there who are, who are almost quite annoyed at the UX community yeah. are doing what they're doing. Neil um, follows, up, follows up here. You want to read that one too? Yeah, so yeah, so Neil sort of says, there are also some, but not all by any means, put the pitchforks down, UXers who think that HF is inferior to UX and who go to great lengths to diminish what HF brings to the table. And I think that is true. And I think the opposite is true as well. So we've had conversations in the UK about our chartership and what our professional accreditation means. And one of the discussions that is ongoing, it, keep, it keeps on repeating is, should we be doing, so we have the, the membership version. So you become a chartered member of the Institute or a chartered fellow. But there is only really one one standard. You are either a chartered human factors across all five competencies and everything that entails, or you're not. So if you're if you've got more of a specialism, so in this case UX, which does bring in a good chunk of HF stuff, but not the full breadth of competencies, is it valid for us to say actually what we should have is a chartered UX professional? qualification, a grade within of membership that recognizes that UX is not across all of HF, but UX will have some elements to it that HF doesn't have, perhaps. And at the moment, it, that discussion goes one of two ways. You, you either do what one half of the group says, which I think I'm in, in this camp of saying, the good thing is that if we can get people accredited, get people the professional membership, be that chargeship or whatever else is around the world, then we're, we're providing a level of standardization. The whole point of professional accreditation is that you know what you're going to get when you employ somebody. Or if you're working with somebody, you know what sort of standard they've been trained to and peer-reviewed at. But then we've got the other half that says, hold on a second. I've worked really hard to get my chartered membership at this level across all five competencies. Why should somebody else come in and get a chartership through an easier route? or through a different route, does that, they feel that that diminishes their current membership. And that's a valid argument. I think we would have to do, we'd have to work hard to make them comparable or distinguishable, but we're not the first people to do this. So in the UK, we have what we call the BCS, the British Computing Society, which is a chartered organization, a chartered engineering organization. It was the first professional organization I was a member of, actually. The, they recognized that they had the difference between a chartered engineer, but then around within the computing society, you had lots of IT professionals that weren't engineers, so they wouldn't meet the competence levels of, of an engineer, but they do really great IT stuff. And so then they flexed out to having a chartered a CITP, a chartered IT professional which you could see the difference between that and the, and the chartered engineer. A, everybody was happy within their camps, but you could still remain within the same organization. You were just doing different things. So I think that for me, the future has to be, particularly with this type of news, that we have to 
get professionally recognizing UX professionals, what skills that truly means. Because I was lecturing to a UX course a couple of months ago, I think it was, or maybe a month ago, about my view, what the differences are and what the overlaps are between HF and UX. And I think they are different. And we need to recognize that, recognize the overlap, but recognize and, and celebrate the differences because we work really well together. That was a very long diatribe that basically boils down to saying <laughs> the professional professional status of both things and celebrate it. Yeah. I should have been. It's interesting because it's like, if who is the authority to handle accreditation? Is there multiple Me. authorities? Okay, so Barry is the authority. Yeah. The thing about these certifications or professional accolades that indicate your expertise in a skill, they're this is another interesting problem because a lot of these boot camps or, or uh, what did Charles bring up here? The leading experts in the field who uh, do these catch and grabs, catch and, catch and release, I think they offer certifications or participation trophies, if you will, uh, a certificate of completion that's different than like a professional accreditation that shows I can exercise these skills in this domain and do them well based on the portfolio. Like this is some of the stuff that we talked about with BCPE with Gene back at HFES. And it's one of those things where they will sit down and evaluate your portfolio. You have to take a really hard test to be an accredited BCPE professional. And there's several accreditations that they offer UX professional, human factors professional, um, and several levels too. One is accomplished by just the education piece. And then one, the higher level is accomplished by assessing your work samples along with that test that showcases some of your ability to perform the work. And so I think that certainly can be one. And is that one the end all be all? I don't know. Could it's be. like Into comparison with what we do in the UK is the Chartered Institute handles all of that and so for individuals who want to be chartered, they have to, it, it's not a test, it's a show of competence. So you have to produce evidence, normally through a logbook over a number of years, that you have done work and that work has been peer reviewed. Um, and you offer it as evidence and it is peer reviewed by the assessors. Then you fill out the application form, you have a mentor, you have a supporter. And so there's a lot of, it's not necessarily saying we're not going to give you an exam. But all of the people around it, there's a good, what, three, five, there's a good six people in this circle at least around each application that says, I know this person and I'm willing to stake my name that they are of the right standard that I would be happy to work with. And for me, that's what I like that. I think it it should, it's what we need because it's people willing to be people who are keen to see our profession grow, we are the holders of the standard because you don't want to let people who are not quite reaching the standard yet because then you devalue our entire profession. So that happens for your actual membership. But if you're offering, if you're wanting to offer courses that do, this is where it gets interesting because you can go through to the, go through the CHF and say, I want, I, I deliver this course 
HFI is a good example, so human practice integration, because you can't really get that through a, a degree course. There are companies within the UK that teach HFI. You can go to the Chartered Institute and say, I'm delivering this course, can you accredit me? And so a bit like like a, like a boot camp, you, any course that comes along, you should go along to the Institute and say, can you accredit this? And they will go through and check it against the standards, make sure that you're delivering, make sure that you're de- the output of what you do will be of value and, and useful. The challenge we have at the moment is I could put together a course on HFI. I'm only picking on HFI because I'm doing a lot of it at the moment. I could put together a course on HFI and then put that course out there for people to subscribe to without going through the expense or the hoops of getting it accredited. And I know I could make money off it. Yeah, I know I get people that's in the through the net. I know what I'm talking about. I'd like to think I would push out quality people because that's the only way that you're going to succeed. But equally, I could put out quite a cheap and cheerful one day human factors course and you'll come out of this knowing everything there is doing human factors in 24 hours. There's nothing out there at the moment to say, I must get that accredited except my own conscience. What, it, what that relies on is the pull from employers, the pull from other people to say, actually, you're not allowed to go on that training course unless it's accredited. You're not allowed to work on this bit of work unless you're accredited. So you've got right. professional quali- a recognized qualification. And that is something that's been failing, actually, not just in the HF and the UX world, but actually across professional, a lot of different professional domains. It always used to be the case if you were a chief engineer or you were a senior project engineer, you would have to be a chartered engineer. That's just, that is the defined standard. But probably about 15, 20 years ago, yeah, let's go 15 years ago, that requirement started to get loosened because chartered engineers are expensive because they Mm -hmm. go through a lot of, when I picked up my chartered engineer, again, that was interviews, that was all sorts to get through them hoops. So it's not cheap and easy to get through. So a lot of companies will then say, actually, if you if we know that you're the standard, why do I need to pay you to go and get a chartered engineer when I know you're already there? And so all of these, a lot of the companies are not requiring you to have the right have to have these because they're expensive. And also, then it's the as soon as you turn around and say you need to be a certified member, then you can then turn around to, to the company and say that's a requirement to the job. You pay for it, not me. So it's it's quite complex picture yeah which yeah, doesn't help I, people who, those, those people who are just being laid off <laughs> we're not the ones who are going to solve this problem we're not going to solve it here on this podcast tonight i don't know we've got another half hour yeah we have gone about half hour already it's it's the same thing with like project management right there's or, or safe and ad like agile let's just look at agile the agile process there's a number of certifications out there that say you are agile certified and by what authority are they saying that it, it's the reputation behind the organization that holds the weight and so you have the project management institute that a lot of project managers get their pmp certification from or they have agile certifications there's scrum.org there's scrum alliance there's safe agile there's a bunch of different types of agile less agile there's a bunch of different accreditations for essentially the same thing and it's i think the the margin for 
success is maybe less significant for something like I, I shouldn't even say that because everybody has their parts to play in the process. And, you know, I think the, the amount of training that it takes to be like, let's say a scrum master, for example, is less than the amount of time it would take to become a human factors engineer or somebody who partakes, who, who practices human factors. And so those, the level of effort is then different. And it's when we start to think about these weekend courses that give you all the skills that you need to do these things. That's when it's just like, it's unrealistic to teach all the skills that you need to do in that amount of time. And how do we accredit them? You know, how do we, how do we accomplish that? Neil also brings up on YouTube here, similar to what you were saying, Barry, is how, where's the demand signal come from though? You could say that companies should do it, but at some point they will start looking at cost unless there's a requirement. So is this Neil's GRC, GRC, do we advocate for some policy here stateside at least that, that would encourage this type of training for government programs or government funded uh, research or those types of things? I can very easily see us having those types of requirements for grants from a government agency, right? Like you, you cannot yeah. work on this project in, unless you are certified in X, Y, and Z. And that's where th those types of requirements could come in. And here in the UK, we have that, which certainly in defense, if you're wanting to, in defense, if you're wanting to, do, to work as an HR practitioner or deliver HR product, then the requirement is there that on the project has to be, the project, the HF lead has to be a chartered member of the Institute. It's quite specific about that. You have to be a chartered member of the CIHF. Now, and that is part, that is one of the, one of the ideas that if you've got the right person in place, then at least they, they will then know how, how to implement the standard and therefore it works. You've got, a, you've got that compass. And in a lot of the, bids that, custom, that um, suppliers have to put in. They don't just have to put in and say, we will have somebody. They have to name the, the individual with the CV. Now, yeah, that sounds quite hard work, and it is. And we've talked before about the lack of numbers that we have qualified in the UK. At least then they're making the effort. The, the downside comes to this is if it suddenly becomes too difficult, you put it in the too hard category, then we can skip it. And I've seen quite a few programs turn around and so quite significant sized businesses not have any qualified HFUP, HF people in the role and mod being asked to overlook it and say it's not a problem and just to move on anyway. And that can happen. So yes, the, 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 the demand signal has to come from that end customer somehow but that end customer has to see the value in doing it in order to go to the effort of saying yes we shall do this and i don't know whether there's anything comparable in the us in that way but i think the defense at the moment is the only bit of government that does that yeah neil says uh, often in the us this seems to come about most often in dod yeah. defense yeah. He says, but I think there's actually multiple solid avenues for consideration. So the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's absolutely right. And, and the, uh, the interesting thing with this is that the, you look at some of these big companies, Google, Microsoft, they take work from the government as contractors. Mm -hmm. yep. And requiring contractors to take on 
those certifications as well could could increase the visibility of accreditations within our industry. And I think a lot of them already do this, but the problem is when you look at some of the other stuff that these tech companies are doing that are not government funded, that are more private interest, then they start looking at cutting cost. And it's like, yeah, you get the principal scientist for the big government contracts, but then you have Joe Schmo who went to the UX bootcamp working on the design of maybe Microsoft Word or something. I don't know. I don't, I don't know who works on Word. I'm not picking on anybody in particular here, but you see what I'm saying is that there's, and of course, maybe you get somebody like that to lead that project or whatever you learn through the government funding is, is what you apply to the rest of your products. But I think the demand signal is an interesting problem, especially when it comes from the, from the private sector. That's a big part of the problem right there is because you get you get these layoffs that happen like we're talking about right now where it gets too expensive to continue operating at that cost and is it really too expensive or are the people that we're hiring in these roles not performing at the same level that they should be it's really it's not difficult to illustrate return on investment for things like human factors or ux but it is if you're not preparing for it. And so I think having some sort of competency in showing return on investment for different decisions within UX or within human factors, I think is also another really good skill for us to develop to help us with this long-term vision of having this accreditation be part of industry. I um, think we're also... Yeah, go ahead. We- Getting ourselves down a slight rabbit hole of Maybe. <laughs> all of these people not perhaps being as competent as they should be, when actually one of the driving reasons that's stated is the is job replacement through AI and not feeling that they get that they need these people on board because AI can do it. As Neil points out in the chat again, it's we have to show that we are worth it is the point you were making as well, is we have to show that we're worth it, but we have to show that we're worth it in the changing face of technology. So where does AI fit in the HF world? Where does AI fit in the UX world? Actually, a lot of what we're doing at the moment is, and I advocate this quite a lot, AI is nothing but a tool at the moment. And it's how we use that tool to, to the best of best advantage. And more of what we do that way more of what we do that way is really quite in is quite important. But if we don't change and adapt, then we're going to have significant issues further on down the line because we're still going to be doing really basic HF stuff when actually a lot of the stuff that we do can probably be done by a decent chat, G, chat G, G, GPT model. And it's up to us then to utilize that, but then do the stuff that definitely couldn't do with problem solving and the skills that we have that it doesn't. Yeah. You're Sorry, I was... I was laughing because I see what Neil's doing here, and I'm going to reward him for 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 participating in the chat tonight. So Neil says, perhaps having a resource of, for evidence of not only what happens when we're not involved, but also the good news stories of what happens when we are involved properly. Maybe like that good news stuff that we talked about at HFES. So I did put the little QR code right up here so you can scan that. If you want to share good news 
about human factors and what we can do. Neil is working on a project. You can go back and listen to our interview at HFES this year to, to learn more about that. So I'll put up the link here for you, Neil. It's, it's a free plug. <laughs> it is a fair point. And actually, it's a, it is a worldwide issue that when human factors is done properly, nobody ever knows because nobody ever compliments us on a on a great ui nobody ever compliments us on a on a smooth on a smooth system interface because it's intuitive and it's just natural and and all that sort of we only really find out people find out about hf and ux when we don't do the job properly and so right. i think possibly why we and every presentation i do i do sit there particularly introductory ones and you want to sit there and go and this is the disaster that big that comes about when you don't do hf look at this aircraft crash look at this whatever it is and it's all always disaster safety ridden type things um but i do have a quite nice one about the um not being able to get into a bar properly because because the handle's on the wrong way um but yeah we do evangelize about when it goes wrong not so much about when it goes right though we do there are some case studies out there now so we produce nature i say we the UK community produced an HFI booklet a number of years ago now, sort of showing the good use of HF. But the problem with it is that the HF line comes at a cost and it is a spend to save. You are going to spend time and effort doing HF work. And if you do that properly, you will end up with a better product at the end. The problem you get is when budgets start, start to be cut, and you get senior stakeholders going, I know that this HF stuff will stop us from having a, an accident or we'll stop doing that, but our product's better than that. that won't happen to us. Therefore, therefore we can cut that. And, and then it's not until like years later, because the programs we get involved with tend to be quite long, that they're like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Now we'll pay twice as much to fix the problem that it wouldn't have cost anywhere near as much to, to do in the first place. Yeah. Um, so. All right. So you brought up AI. Let's talk a little bit about AI because that kind of transitions to the second half of this discussion of is human factors going to be replaced by AI? No, it's not short, short, long story short. But I, I do want to go back to this comment here by Charles. Corporations now need a reliable, reliable path forward regarding user experience optimization and product innovation. Enter AI, which at its core is unreliable and subject to massive IP problems. And so there is a lot of opportunity for us as human factors, UX professionals here going forward. I'm jumping all over the place here, but back to Nielsen's sort of state of the industry here, right? You have looking forward to is UX disintegrating? No, it's not. I think there's there, there, there are some things in here about what we've been talking about here. And I'm also going to bring these up because these are along the same lines of the accreditation stuff that we were just talking about. So he says, first, let me say the old days were not as depicted. Yes, I ascended to the lofty intellectual heights of a PhD, but most of the best UX people I've worked with in early days didn't have anything near the education of today's credentials demanded. That's opposite of what we were just saying. The smartest of the lot had only a high school diploma and the other two top talents had a bachelor's degrees in theater and architecture. The only top UX talent I worked with who might possibly secure the begrudging approval of the degree snobs did have a master's in human factors. Let's look at the future here with AI, because I think there's some things in here. So just to, because you mentioned on the qualifications piece, again, you don't need vast amount of, of qualifications to get your professional accreditation. Your professional accreditation is about competence. Yes, your academic 
qualification might get you there a bit quicker. But equally, you can get a professional accreditation without having um, a human factors d- degree. You can even become president of the, of the of the organization without a human factors wow. degree. How do Hello. you know that, Barry? Well, that'll be me then. It is a very, what we do can be easily and easily learned vocationally. It takes longer and it's taken me a good part, good part of 20 years. But I'm, I'm with what he was saying. What, he, what you're looking at with a UXHF professional who's got their accreditation is not necessarily saying they're gifted. It means that they've committed to the, the profession and they're committed to their own development and to the profession as a whole. Um, which is why I think it's quite important. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. So let's bring up AI here. They did. He did look at the good news of 2023, right? We, we recap the bad news with all the tech layoffs and that's continuing into 2024. But the good news of 2023, in all bold letters here, the future of UX is AI. Recommends that every UX professional urgently needs to learn how to use AI in his or her work to avoid obsolescence in two 2024. They say we we need more UX work to improve enterprise AI, domain-specific AI implementations. I think there's a lot on AI in here. He expects the AI-driven UX boom to happen in 2025. So we're about mm-hmm. a year out from that. But we'll, he says we'll suffer a stifling lack of UX professionals within two years of experience designing and researching AI-driven user interfaces. The only way to have two years of experience in 2025 is to have started in 2023, but very few people did. And goes on to say two years is the minimum to develop a strong understanding of the new design patterns and user behaviors that we see in um, the usability studies. So the the future, AI, start small, start now, is what the advice is. And that's the, uh, the looking forward good news is that there's going to be a big boom on how we integrate AI into products and services and systems. And there's going to be a need for people who understand how people interact with AI to do that. And so this is, it's interesting because right now we're at a, we're at a, a, a point where companies are maybe doing large swaths of layoffs because they think AI is the solution, yet we need to figure out how to use AI in those solutions. And therefore, hello, we're sitting right here. And that it's a really good point, isn't it? Because how much have we been playing around with over the past 18 months, different AI tools just to do what we do here? In the past month, I've been so now ChatGPT, for example, would allow you to to create your own GPTs. And so I decided to fiddle around to see if I could get a ChatGPT-driven GPT model to enable me to do human factors integration. And could it be my human factors integration engineer to answer questions and help guide me along the way of doing it? And the answer is definitely maybe. There is, we've given loads of examples in the past of how we've used... AI to be the other person around your your design table, your in your agile scrum, in your in your focus group to to test your questionnaires, to give you an overview of a of, of a domain that you maybe don't know, to start putting together your reports, to give you a structure. There's loads and loads of things that enable us to be f- better, faster, quicker, harder at what we do. But that still doesn't take away from us being 
excellent at what we do and making that stuff work properly. So playing with this, playing with AI at this level means that we are doing some really interesting bits and trying to get ahead of the game to a certain extent. But I still think we're only scratching the surface of the cool things that AI can do. Do I think it could replace us as professionals? Probably not yet, not for a good few years, but it is definitely going to be a thing to help us get there. And I think you've frozen massively. Uh, Yeah, your visuals are frozen and I can barely hear you. Oh, and he's gone. No, he's no, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, now you're there. I, there. There's been some like internet issues, I think, lately. Anyway, no, I think you're right. I heard all that. I heard all that. And yes. don't say it again. <laughs> no, we're, don't, don't say it again. I think uh, the, the point that I was going to bring up here is that we, I think you and I, Barry, have gotten really excited about AI on this show. And I can see by the numbers of people who listen to the episodes where we talk about AI, that is not in general interest right now (laughs) there's the or at least from our profession and it boggles my mind because we are sitting here going this is really important this is going to be really important can we like look at this stuff over here look at this can you see what this does i think i compared the first time i used ai and these large language models at least to the first time you search something on google and it came back with results and you use the internet and you're like whoa this thing look at this thing and um it really is going to be transformative in the way that we use it in everyday things and in ways that we don't fully understand yet. And that really excites me and is something that I'm really devoted to learning more about. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting that here it is being validated, at least by this newsletter here, (laughs) that that it is the future. And it's exciting, at least from my perspective. Barry, you you need to step up your backdrop game. John on LinkedIn. I was, John's not wrong. So in the chat, John has highlighted that I need to, my backdrop game, I need to have a steely satcom picture. So John is somebody I work with through developing, delivering satellites. And yes, he's clearly keen for me to have. John, if you guys want to supply me a steely satcom picture to go in the background, then feel free to do so. And then we'll give it pride of, pride of place. But on the more Serious point that he makes, not that steely satcom pictures are not serious. A balanced HF team with a mix of technical knowledge, management, and domain experience is the gold standard. And I, I couldn't agree more about what I love about, and I, I, I'm, this is almost what I preach to everybody, is the beauty about what we do in HF is you rarely get two people who are exactly the same. Because people tend to the way people find human factors, they've normally gone through some sort of journey beforehand. So they maybe come through engineering, maybe they come through psychology, maybe they've, whatever the route is, that has then heavily influenced the element of HF you want to get involved with. I love doing HCI design. That's that's the, that's the big thing. I like doing HFI and bits, of, but there's bits that I haven't really got that much experience in, like doing in, in-depth safety analysis and coming up with them minute numbers. I still think that that's a level of witchcraft. But the whole point is then you I've worked in teams where you've got specialists in that and it means you can have some really great discussions. So yeah, John, I completely agree with you. Having that mix of a team is makes companies have good HF output. The struggle that we get is actually certainly in the UK, I can probably count one, two, three large HF teams in the UK that are more than just a couple of people. And I know where there's one within the MOD, 
There's one within the submarines business of BA Systems. And that, yes, there's another part, there's another one in the, the research department of the MOD. But now we're talking about teams of 10 plus. Everything else is quite small. So trying to get, trying to A, get the justification for these sort of getting more people in through the door and the value that they bring is difficult. Quite often you're in there as a loan or maybe a couple of you as contractors, as consultants. And it's a tough world out there and you're expected to know everything or be able to blag it. One of the two. Yeah. All right. Why don't you go ahead and weigh in if you want to be a live caller and let us know what you think of the tech layoffs, of the AI boom that's about to happen. Dial in here. Let us know what your thoughts are and we'll put you on. It's like a live radio show. You can be right here with us. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. I do. This is the best transition I have for this type of thing, because we talked about this last week on the show. But another John on YouTube brought up some good points from last week's show that I wanted or not last week, but last time show that I wanted to bring up because they were some there were some good points here that we talked about the education side last time about how to integrate human factors into at young childhood ages to aspire to be human factors people. I want to read their comment here. On the education system topic, I think something important to consider would be introducing human factors to undergraduate students and students in primary school, high school going downwards. I agree that introducing human factors to younger students is a good idea, but I also think that part of the value for introducing the field to middle or high school age students is that one, those students would get into the field sooner than younger students would. And two, the younger human factors professionals could influence students younger than them to join the field as well once they become practitioners. I think having an outreach focus on collaborating with institutions who work with students is is going to be the essential for having the impact 
you both were describing. There's also another point here about being media trained, <laughs> and I, it's mm-hmm. in the same comment, so I'll, I'll read that as well. These are just like catch up from last week. On the need for human factors professionals to be media trained, I agree. I think we also need marketing and selling trained in a similar way so that we are able to pitch the field, advocate for ourselves to be involved in interdisciplinary spaces, and spread the word about human factors all at the same time. I think there is an opportunity to encourage collaboration between human factors and other fields in new ways that put us on the map. I think these are great points here, and I'm really happy with the amount of contributions that everyone has made over the last, since we posted last time. I think the conversation has been great since we changed up the format, and I don't know if that's just a new year, new you type of thing, or if that's just the format change itself, but I'm really liking this. Let's see Let's see where we're at in June. Let's and, see where uh, we're at in June. Uh <laughs> But no, I mean, to them, two points. I mean, to the second point first, this is something I've been banging on about for ages within the Institute about, not necessarily for every time media training and things like that, but we need some people who can advocate for us, some people who can sell human factors, UX, ergonomics in that sexy way or that way that makes it appealing the way that makes it come across on camera, on media, effortless and tells the stories that we need to tell. Because invariably, there's, we've got some fantastically knowledgeable people who can really talk to a conference, to a scientific paper, but actually you need people who can communicate to the, the general public, the on telly. How do you bring ergonomics to TV? When there's an episode of The West Wing, and I think it's in the first series where they talk about being, I think it's National Ergonomics Day or something like that. And I thought that's amazing. And for ages now, I keep on meaning to go back and rip off that episode to try and do it for presentations. But yeah, it needs to be done. So there's, oh, I really wish we had more time. I, re- I really wish we did have more time. We have a whole other hour left. Maybe we'll get to it. There's Something else I threw in like our bucket to talk about this week was changes to the submission process for the HFES Aspire conference. And I think this Mm -hmm. is, I want to put this on the bucket because I feel like it, it is a conversation worth having, especially for making human factors accessible and for the availability for those in industry to contribute their research. And so I think Maybe we'll have a larger discussion about that. I think, and also the title here says CES, wherever you're watching, it says CES. So let's talk about the CES stuff, because I think this is a fun, like, hard right from where we were with the tech layoffs. CES is tech, but it is a bunch of new technology that's pretty cool in in some ways and can be weird in others. I don't know how else to say it. Like CES is cool and weird. I have an article here from Wired that goes over the most interesting things for a variety of categories here. And I, this might be a good place to start. We can look up other things too. If you're following the news and you've seen something cool from CES, drop it in the comments so that way we can see it and we can look it up ourselves. I figure we go down this list here because there's some things on this maybe i should send this list to you barry i think <laughs> probably be a good place to start that might be useful though so i've, I've yeah. got the, the i've got the verges oh the verge has one too okay so we got wired and the verge maybe we can just collaborate on both of these and see where we come up with because the first thing here on the wired list is the best health tech 
And they bring up this Vivu, I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying that, at-home UTI diagnostic test. And I think that's cool that this kind of technology is available at home. I think there's also concerns with it being FDA cleared. And Heidi talks about that on her show, the FDA clearance. But this is cool. So if you suspect you have a UTI, instead of scheduling a doctor's appointment and peeing in a cup, you download the app, pee on a stick, and scan the strip with your phone. The deep learning image processing helps determine the results. Hey, look, there's some AI application there, which you can then send to your doctor and get a prescription to clear up the infection as well as some necessary and immediate relief. Fair enough. What do you got on The Verge? I'm just I'm trying to get into your wide article, but I have now, so that that's good. Let's go back to The Verge one. I would say, actually, it's not a very good way of doing it. It's actually... Yeah, it's a rubbish article, if I'm brutally honest. Let's use your your article, unless I can pull up something better from this. Yeah, it, this is just a list of stuff that didn't work very well. Is that like the uh, failed things from CES this year? Yeah, so it's got that. It's a badly laid out article. So it's, it's just basically got all stories that have... That, but it's got a mixture of like youtube sorry, TikTok stuff, as well as everything else. So... I'm not that impressed with it. It's hard to find things that are tailored towards our audience. I think this one is interesting because we can bring up these things that they have human factors applications or not. And we can go from there. We can editorialize on the fly, I think. I found an article that is better on it. So it is, I've now found there. CS of 2024, everything that you want. So we can do that now. Okay, Um, all right, great. I'm with it. So one of the things that they highlight is the controlling your smart home through your tv as opposed to because everything we do now at the moment is obviously through 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 your phone isn't it you have an app for everything Mm -hmm. now they're on about trying to do things using things like generative ai etc to be able to control your devices through different things so they, they showed an example there of being able to control your control your devices at home through your TV, which is, it, on the one hand, it makes sense, and it's a Samsung approach because it, it, Samsung have the, the smart things. And if you've ever used the smart things app on your phone, it's not very good. But this is a, a bit of a step change for that. I don't necessarily think that's the best way for it to go. The best way for it to go is to actually use things like replacing light switches in the house with yeah. smart light switches. And but allowing them to do different things because the last thing you want to do is go and start touching your telly and stuff like that because you get fingerprints everywhere. No, is, you, you put things where you're going to interact with them. Yeah, but I like the idea of getting things off your phone because having everything controlled through your phone and obviously Alexa is a, or other speakers are available, then yeah, fair enough, okay. Um, I think the interesting thing with that type of, technology and one of the major trends coming out of CES is AI and how to implement rules and preferences that adapt based on how you use them, right? So there's, I don't have a reference for this off the top of my head, but there are sensors that can detect where you are in a room mm-hmm. to like the, and and you can set up things with automation to be very specific 
If I'm in my office, I only want my office lights on. But if I'm in my office and you detect a presence out in the other room, I want both sets of lights on. But if there's nobody in both, turn them all off. As I move from my office and leave, turn off my lights. I don't care for that. And so the interesting thing is going to be setting up AI and automation to adapt to your home environment in a way that it can receive feedback and say, oh, I didn't like that. Don't do that again in a natural way. And having these large language models processing your inputs is going to be an interesting thing. I want to bring up an article here from Kinetic. The dominant theme at CES 2024 was AI, and especially how AI has become an enabler for more technology and applications. They go on to write a little bit more about this, but they say ARP has created a compact smartphone-sized field asymmetric ion mobility sensor <laughs> using a proprietary ionizer and glass olfactory sensor. What that means is air is drawn through a small tube, ionized, passed through an electric field. But the point here is it's impossible to look at these electrical mass analyses based on these patterns. But if you use machine learning to look at these types of things, then you can enable AI with a sense of smell to detect some of these like harmful odors. And I think that's related to the thing that I was talking about with home automation. That's mm -hmm. where it's going to be really big is when you give these sensors, the ability to process things in your environment, having these always on speakers or, or microphones that understand your input and when you're asking for something versus when you're providing feedback to a system and having the system adapt and respond. That is when the, I think the, the full circle is going to be very apparent. And that is where I think our role is going to be really interesting in that whole thing where how do you take that feedback and how do you how do you get the human's input through this whole thing? So there's that. Uh, th that was an article by Kinetic. We could talk about some more of the stuff on this wired list. I'm going down to see what's like some of the cool stuff to talk about. There's the transportation category, which is the supernal SA2, which is normally we'd run wired goes on to say normally we'd run a mile for saying the best transportation reveal at CES was a flying car. But here we are. Supernal's EV toll, the SA2, is clearly much more than a pipe dream for the company, a division of the Hyundai, Hyundai Motor Group. Oh, I see that. You'll see this all-electric pilot plus four-passenger vehicle in the skies in just four years' time. Of course, we're always four years away from flying cars. Not nice. only is the design striking and honed using biomimicry, it is pretty cool looking. Let's see. So I'm hoping that they bring that to the Farnborough Air Show this year because there was, when I was at the Farnborough Air Show a couple of years ago, there was a sort of similar thing. It didn't look like that, but a similar type of idea. So you had your rotating blades and stuff. I hope if they bring something like that to Farnborough Air Show this year, which I, I'm hopefully going to, then I can't wait to see that sort of stuff. Yeah. It's not going to be that long, is it, really, before, in theory, we can all have our own little. Uh, flying cars and being able to get places then we'll get into a whole heap of other problems about airspace and things like that one thing that i found on the other article that i was looking at was we i think we spoke about this lots of episodes back with nvidia producing video game npcs that are ai powered and so you can interact with them better and so one of the the journalists here has gone and actually engaged with what are these devices now, having been quite scathing about it last year, has, has come away quite convinced that this is the future. 
and just just by seeing the picture that they've got there of them doing it, it's going to provide a richer game experience. I think we spoke about it because that's how we could also improve training, where people are using synthetic training environments. And actually, if you can have better NPCs involved, then it gives you it will give a much richer yeah. training experience. So that's quite an exciting development, I think, from a geek perspective. Yeah. And when you have those training scenarios evolve to where the NPCs are talking with each other. Yeah. And you interject with input like there's a really cool training exercise I saw on like combat triage a couple years back. And I can imagine this one where everyone's just yelling and screaming for help would be traumatic, but also a really good training exercise for how it would actually be. In, in those moments where many people are hurt and you need to focus on the ones that you can triage. I'll just leave it at that. Well, yeah. No, I was going to say, there's a couple of... Well, the other one that I quite like is that where we struggle to teach is it, things like out in, out in Afghanistan where you got the troops will go out on patrol and see residents and local villagers and things interacting with each other. And there's a fine line between understanding whether people are just chatting away, having you know, living their best lives, mm-hmm. or they're acting to you. And so one of the things that, that has to get trained is like when to intervene, because you can't just go up and start talking to everybody when, you've, when you're when you a soldier, and because you're intimidating. But equally, if you don't intervene at the right point, then you might be just seconds away from an IED. So actually, this type of interaction will allow you to understand the pattern of life of what the way people interact or that works and we'll be able to train that a lot better so yeah that's gonna be quite cool yeah here's another piece of tech here the milo action communicator if you've ever gone skiing or backpacking in a group you know that the worst part of the day is when you're supposed to meet up at the end and someone's wandered off milo reimagines the old familiar walkie-talkie as a modern voice communication platform for small groups Clip a palm-sized device to the outside of your jacket or backpack strap, and then chat freely without worrying about clicking the right button or finding the right frequency. Milo is hands-free, phone-free, and Milo AI will talk to you when you need hands-free help fast. For example, Alex is in range, or hey, Milo, talk to Sarah. Milo can send and receive signals to other units up to 5,000 feet away in clear terrain, which is nearly a mile. So could my phone. Oh, Neil's got a Milo on order. <laughs> it's interesting. That's I wonder really what the use case is because when would you use that? When would you want to be using that sort of tech when you're out of range of a mobile phone side? Because most, yeah, I get. I think yeah. the the use case there is like having open communication with people that you're with. If somebody's, it's almost like a loudspeaker. Yeah, there's a lot of places that don't have cell service. And so if you need to be able to communicate with others that are nearby or within range, that could be that could be really useful. And I can imagine where, yeah, if somebody's wandered off, hopefully you stay together in groups. But if somebody's wandered off and they need help, that could be a good way to call for help. The thing that I'm a little bit less clear on is this thing like an always on. If I'm talking, you can hear me almost like we're a group together. Or is this something where I still have to activate it so that way everyone can hear as I broadcast something? Is it a, It's not a push to talk, but you can say, hey, Milo, talk to Sarah as an example. They say here, is that like a private channel that then just activates that private channel and you're just talking with Sarah? But then I just don't understand those type of use cases. And so... I get why you'd want it, 
but those like individual Alex is in range. What does in range mean and who defines yeah, that? And... You're creating your own ad hoc network with Milo. So each one acts as a node. Yeah, yeah, I guess I, the, the comment I was more making around the cell, the cell services, the, the certain places that I think we go because we don't want cell service and yeah. therefore add value to that. But again, if you're skiing in particular, I think is actually a really good use case. If you go down a crevasse or you get an avalanche or something like that, would that work? You get the, a lot of ski jackets now have the active ecosystem in it because of avalanche risk and things like that. Yeah, but I think I'm, I'm intrigued by the usability of it, of how you actually engage with it. This is why really CES would be really well, they should think about it. Oh, one of these magazines, they should, next year they should send us because okay. we can go and do some really on site. Um, Here's the thing, Barry. I'm pretty sure we could get ourselves some press passes. It's it's the, uh, <laughs> it's the being able to get there and it's travel. <laughs> it's travel. Um, <laughs> I'm positive I'm, we could get press passes for this. <laughs> what else you got on your Verge list? So on the Verge list, let's just flip back over to that. I can to there is a and I hadn't realized this, but the but there's been some talk about the Apple Watch getting banned because of the some of the some of the sensors on it is used is been infringing on patents for proprietary technology, and that is a a company called Mazimo, who's known within the medical community for doing pulse oximetry. So understanding the amount of oxygen that there is within the blood. And so it's bought a brand new smartwatch out that has some of this technology in it. Now that is the ability to measure blood oxygen through a simple device like this, that's a, and do it relative, do it to a medical standard, which is, um, that's what Mazimo is, is suggesting. Apple Watch doesn't do it to a medical standard. Uh, if they've got that down and working, then that's a game changer for quite a lot of medical professionals. Because being able to get that sort of information rapidly, if you've got the ability to get blood pulse oximetry, you've then got also got the ability to jump onto a few others. So, yeah, that, that's that's quite interesting. There's a couple uh, other ones here on on this wired list. Best weird. I always looking at the weird categories because these are the ones that are like, are these or aren't these applicable? And how are they going to be used? What is the use case beyond them? And they say the Looking Glass Go is the best weird. And so basically what this is, the six-inch digital frame called the Looking Glass Go. The screen is sharper and thinner than ever. It's a holographic display. You can load spatial photos or 3D holograms onto it. And you can even chat with 3D characters from Looking Glass's Lifeforms app on the display. What's especially notable is the ability to add any 2D photo, even those from a Polaroid, and have it still deliver an incredible 3D effect on the display. So generative AI is behind that. And it's looking at, let's see here, quirky, fun little gizmo to play around with, costs $300. But it drums up a world where our screens aren't just flat and boring. And for me, I'm wondering, is this tech going to be integrated into our phones at some point, right? For $300, a six inch display, that is the size of a phone. But what would, I guess that that it begs the question, what would you use the holographic display for? Now, is it, is is the idea that we merge it into FaceTime and therefore you're talking like what you're going to film where you, uh, you just did the the phone, the, the device is flat and the hologram projects up from it, that type of thing, that could be interesting. Or is it, it just, is, 
I think so. I think this works probably more similar to like how the 3DS screen worked. I don't know if you're familiar with that technology, but it, it uses parallax. And yeah. so I think it works like that. And I'd wonder as you're looking at that display, does it look 3D, but it's a flat? You still hold up whatever it is and it looks like it just uses parallax or whatever to, to make that 3D display i just don't yeah this is one of the ones that i'm like what is the use case here are you talking to npcs okay fine we talked about replica a long time ago remember or okay. our ai counterparts but i think something like that could have use case here i don't know um just moving on one of the other things that i really like to going through this is well, the best for mobile clicks so bringing back actual physical keyboards to be able to text with on your phone. And it basically ends up it's a larger, it's a case for any, for a mobile phone for in, the, in this case, Apple phone, but it, it's basically got its own quota keyboard at the bottom. So you can actually get back to remember, did you ever have a Blackberry where you had the full quota keyboard? And you to, <laughs> yes. It's back. It's it, it just, it, it looks ridiculous. And like, I, I feel like I almost have to just share this so that way people can see what we're talking about here. This thing is, it's, hang on, I'll, I'll show it for those of you who are watching along. There's, it's just, it's an iPhone plugged into, it's an iPhone plugged into this keyboard. It's a phone case that has a physical keyboard on it. And it just is, it's one of those things where it's, why? <laughs> but also, yeah, you got the. Who is this for? Is, is this for digital natives? I think you're more looking at digital immigrants, people who still hanker back to be able to. But then, your typing speed is still gonna is gonna be quicker on a physical device, or your digital immigrants. Now, whether that's hands true for digital natives, I'm not sure because digital natives will use more of the interpretive keyboards. But yeah, it's it just looks like one of them things that. I could see some people using and getting really quite excited about if you're somebody who does long conversational emails, things like that on, on your phone. And by the fact it's an email, maybe lends itself to that type of person, but it just looks huge. It just looks so long. It's comic. It, it's comical in, in the amount of space, physical space it takes up. It's what about for bigger phones, right? Like I have a big phone and I'm just imagining like this big old bulky keyboard at the bottom of it. And this is probably my bias sinking in here as a digital native kind of growing up with that technology. I I just, to me, seems like its days are limited already. But again, we're... Uh, <laughs> but I also wonder whether it actually, it's the fact that it's yellow is throwing us off as well. If it was a more, a darker color, it blend, looked like it blended a bit more into the frame of the phone. I don't know. I think I might be reaching. Just going back to the story we were talking about with the pulse oximetry in the Apple phone, John on LinkedIn sort of has highlighted a bigger game changer is non-invasive blood glucose monitoring will revolutionize, you can tell he's get my words out, type 1 diabetes care, apparently in development for future Apple watches. And absolutely, certainly for the civilian medical industry, then that is the, the explosion in the people with type 1 and type 2 diabetes is the next or is the epidemic that's here the pandemic that's here so yeah no that that's absolutely one of these things that if that comes out and and works reliably we're already seeing constant monitoring but that still is is still invasive it should just but if you can get away from that then that will be something big don't know whether we saw anything or 
with it from CES, but hopefully it's that that is an inspiration for future tech development. And if Apple come and do it, then crack on. Yeah. Actually, one of Yeah, go ahead. So, I, I was going to bring... Okay, so go I'm, gonna do it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Next. You do it. You do it. I've been really intrigued by home theatres and the size of home theatre projection because it's not that long ago to get a projector for your office or to get a projector for your house, you had to have quite a substantial chunk of technology with a really well-lit lamp. And if you got a cheap two, 300 quid version, it wasn't going to work very well. If you wanted something, particularly if you wanted something to work outside, you have to get something really quite massive. But LG have, have, have put out in CES the LG Cinema, uh, Cinebeam Cube, spelled Q-U-B-E. And again, th- this is a, four, a 4K image, and it throws, out, throws it out quite a bit. But it, the box on it is tiny. It's like, it's like that big. And, and we've bought recently for, for my daughter. She wanted a projector for a room. And I'm like, you can't have a projector for your room. That's just silly. But we've got a projector for a room, and it, it's small. It really is, and throws a really good image onto a thing. So I just think that the way that if you want to have a, a projection system, that the way that they're getting smaller but throwing such high quality out there, there is so much adaption that you can do with them. There's some projects I'm playing with at the moment that I think they, they're going to be game changers for, for, the, for the stuff, some of the stuff we're doing around vision and, and sensory vision. Yeah. I think some of the game changingness comes from the short throw projectors and what you can do with those. So having them strategically placed around your home to where you can modify the, again, I'm trying to think of like where this is going to impact people the most and in the home, in the office for those still going into work. I think that's going to be uh, really interesting where you have a short throw projector in the front room that shows on a wall that is painted with reflective paint that is optimized for picture, a calendar. Mm that shows you everything going on today in, in that room. And as these things become more affordable, you have those types of things available, which are comparable to, let's say, an LCD screen that is, or LED screen that is just there that's displaying the things. The difference with a projector is that it can be reactive to an environment versus the, I guess, screen approach where it might need to be interacted with where you can have passive reaction going on to that thing. I'm trying to think of a use case here, but that to me that to me was would be the, the game changingness of it where you know instead of clicking or touching and dragging a, a meeting invite, you can grab it and move it where it might feel a little more natural. I don't know. I'm stretching here. I guess one of the limit for the day. <laughs> I think one of the interesting things I, I think is again it's about using technology for, for the sake of te- technology. I struggle to see in a lot of the home side of things why you would go to the inconvenience of using a, a projector when actually, as you said, the screen technology itself is sufficiently cheap and useful that actually you'd hang that on the wall. Now, there's for me the projector is there for rapidity of deployment for temp for the use of on a temporary nature rather than permanent installation now. If I want a permanent screen there, I'm putting an LCD screen in there because it's easier. But definitely I can give you a use case in the home is like, or even in the office. It's these interesting places where screens might not necessarily be the right 
type of display. So I'm thinking of like a curved wall in an office building. Okay. You can map a projection to that to be spot on. Likewise, if you have maybe an angled corner in a home, you could split one projection into two and have two screens there that are based off the same input, same projection device, but then they're mapped to the wall in your home. Or likewise, you could have some of these like more artistic things in the home that are reaction displays to, as you walk by, maybe this display will react to you coming around. Or I'm even thinking like children's technology where you might have like a reactive display that encourages learning or something along those lines where, again, it's this short throw projected thing that that is adaptive to the environment in which you're in. And you, you can put it on this wall, you can put it on that wall, you can swivel it around, doesn't matter where it is in the room, it'll always adapt to whatever it's pointing at. The biggest thing that projectors, I think, for me, are fascinating and potentially from a professional perspective as well, is when they when for entertainment purposes they you put projections onto houses and or to large buildings and yeah. maybe it's part of high work display, you do things like that. I'm really interested in the idea that somebody could be walking by who maybe is walking past a building of interest that you don't necessarily want them to see. And can you use projection and use local sensing and projection to make the building effectively disappear, almost Harry Potter style? Ooh. If you could make that work. Active camo? (laughs) Yeah, something, yeah, there's, there's something about it, about being able to do but to do it rapidly as well it's not talking about a long-term installation but a shorter t- i need to hide something fairly quickly can we just throw some almost magician-esque if you use put, put the projectors in the right places they automatically sync up and then they throw a projection that makes maybe something around the features of the building disappear you can see what i think about when i'm bored and, and it's a dangerous place to be but i think that'd be fascinating <laughs> That is cool. We may need to end. I don't know if you can hear my upstairs neighbor is just hammering away. They're they're clearly doing some DIY. Okay, you Um, can hear that. All right. I'll try my best to time it. Yeah, I know we've been going for a while. I I do want to bring up one more thing here, and I'll try to talk over this. If it's too distracting, let me know and I'll stop. But the last thing that I will bring up here is this, this piece of tech that comes from, what is the company here? Oh, geez, that is just, we need to stop that. The Belkin Auto Tracking Stand Pro with Dock Kit. And this, I think, has a lot of really good... Okay, Barry, I'm not going to talk about that. You, you can talk about that if you want. Although it probably has a lot of interesting things going on with it. This this piece of technology here, this Belkin Auto Tracking Stand with Dock Kit. Now, this is really cool because it will track the user and basically swivel 360 degrees to track the person talking on this... on on whatever video app that you're on. It'll track with the camera and that you don't have to do anything to make sure that you're always framed properly. And that's the hook here is that it will always frame you correctly. Now I can, I can see this as being a game changer for us when we go to events like HFES or Aspire or EHF and have visuals, we can, a camera on this thing, it'll track us and we don't have to have a camera person there anymore. It makes these startup, we call it like guerrilla podcasting or (laughs) these what do we call it? anyway whatever you go out to these you, you don't need a camera person anymore you just have these it's automated ai it's yeah it's organic and and developing but no i think that sort of thing is going to be quite it's going to be quite interesting there's a few devices now that do that sort of tracking so if you get the latest echo show i think it is for the home that will allow you to do that sort of interaction the facebook 
Facebook had a product as well. Meta had a product that did. So this whole idea of tracking through um, using AI to, to track where you are and what you're doing is really interesting. The last bit I'd like to bring up is is around the, the growth of rings for to be wearing the smart ring. So when I started doing talks on smart wearable technologies, if crikey, about 10 years ago, one of the one of the bits of things I would always have in, have in the kit is a smart ring, one that can uh, replace your ID badge and allow you to get through doors. Now they're getting so much smarter from two perspectives. One is around safety and security, so being able to act as your ID, but also being able to do payments. So you're, you can do your Apple or Android Pay can now be embedded with, with the ring, but also starting to use them to, again, in a similar way we were talking, to, talking about the watches and stuff, being able to understand your, your health parameters and being able right. to understand the state of your body from something that's much less intrusive than wearing like a heart rate band or something like that. And for me, the value in this sort of stuff is not necessarily in the everyday. It's in the things like the with our elderly community. People it's in the out of the ordinary is it's the assist people who live in, in assisted living accommodation and things like that it's things that are unobtrusive so they so monitoring isn't in your face so you're still in having a high quality of life but the monitoring is there should you need it should you have a fall etc cetera, etc cetera. and having these aesthetically pleasing things that people would normally or, or wear anyway being embedded with this technology i think is that's really quite cool interested to see how more of them come along the downside is as soon as you start searching for these things because there's been a couple of things i've been searching for recently one is smart wallets and the other one is is smart rings now all i get on facebook is adverts for smart rings and smart wallets mm, that's so. a different problem <laughs> well, it is yes oh the, yeah. have we got time for one more yeah barry we got time for we got 20 minutes left we can make the show is the thing about the new format is that we can make it as we can start as late as we want and we can end it as early as we want. We've been having a great conversation so far. I'm fine. Go ahead. What else you got? Sure. I don't know whether you know this, but I've got an electric car. Did I men- ever mention that before? And I think I've kept it fairly quiet. So the Hyundai Ionic 5 is taking the advantage of electric car and, and the gadgetry that you can put on there to the next level. It isn't necessarily a new idea, but their main wheels can basically turn through 90 degrees. So you can then sideways maneuver this. Now it's not, in many ways, it's not a new technology because actually a lot of cars have active active steering, which like in big trucks and things like that, the tires or the wheels will move through say 45 degrees. However, this now turns through, because they turn through 90 degrees, it means things like, parallel parking it means that for things like congestion so if you could have just so many knock-on effects that are positive until the point that these that the wheels stop work stop working properly and you can go forward in a straight line but i think it looks fascinating and and quite frankly i want one so i thought i'd throw that in there there was a i'll throw another one in there too since we're just throwing chucking stuff in there was a, a honoree for the innovation award this year that was in the vehicle tech and advanced mobility category is an e-mirror safe UX software platform. And basically what this is, is a, 
Help drivers better see and understand their driving environment by replacing conventional side and rearview mirrors with a camera-based system designed to provide drivers with better visibility, safety alerts, as well as fuel and energy efficiency. So by removing basically the, the side view mirrors and putting screens inside the car that are mm-hmm. based on camera systems that you see in some of these, let's say, high-profile EVs, that uh, it says, by introducing the innovative patented software platform, like transparent view, reactive dimming, and advanced image processing, the software expands the driver's field of view, saves powers, enhances adaptive system comfort, and improves visibility in challenging environments. It's hardware agnostic, so it doesn't require extra sensors and can be installed and updated through over-the-air updates, which is pretty cool. Is that new? I mean, it's, of- it's not new, but the, the, the thing with this, it looks like it's a system that you can just plug into any vehicle. You lop off the uh, side cameras and, and you plug it into any vehicle. And the idea here is that it will give you alerts that you wouldn't get with just a traditional side view. Great. Mirror. So it's a, I guess, aftermarket. Aftermarket. That's what I was looking for. In yeah. fact, yeah, John's just highlighted in the uh, chat as well. Honda have done this. Yeah. Yeah. It's on Tesla's too. And I think it's not a new technology. I think the innovation here is that this is a, it's literally a screen that I guess I have the technology to show this. Yeah. Hang on. I'll show it. It's essentially just a a screen here that, geez, why didn't I just do this to start with? (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's it's a screen that you can throw on your car. And uh, yeah, so you can see Uh, there that it looks like there's still something out there, but I think the camera's probably built in over here. Well, it looks Maybe like it's the there. Oh, yeah. Maybe you just replace the mirror with that. I don't know. The I think it's an aftermarket piece though that you know, goes inside. So you're now looking at this display instead of that rear view, and this would give you alerts like someone's in your blind spot over here or whatever yeah. things this has. But that's the like, idea there. Neat aftermarket idea. I don't particularly like it. One that I've just been looking at here is the R1. So the Rabbit one is a pocket-sized AI gadget that's supposed to use your apps for you. So you don't need your phone. It is there and it just does apps. I've just looked at it about why it is what it is. But apparently it's really popular and has already sold out of its its initial 10,000 units. So it's a small tiny device that has got a bit of a screen on it and it's got a sized processor with memory etc etc and it will last a long time and you have it seems to have just a really simple interface and it's got a bunch of apps on it it seems interesting whether it replaces your phone or not i don't i might have to dive into that in, in into a bit more detail because it's it looks to have a really simple idea for an interface in terms of it's got it's got touch screen. It's got touch on it as well, but yeah. But it's got like what looks like a scroll wheel. So interesting. Yeah, I'm just uh, see a comment here in Twitch by Preximo. Hi, are tech layoffs really so bad in the U.S.? And the short answer is yes. We brought up some statistics earlier on this episode that uh, where was where where's all my notes now? I think it's something like we're already at half the tech layoffs that happened last year, and it's only January in this year. So what was it? Yeah. With today's Microsoft layoffs, in just 25 days of 2024, we're already at over halfway the total layoffs of all 2023. We're at 5,600 this year versus 10,500 last year. Now, this is, this is actually really interesting because 
back to this point. I know we're switching from CES back to the topic that we talked, we started talking about. This actually paints a very different picture from the reports that have been coming out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in the States. We're seeing employment increasing by a large number, and we're also seeing pay raises, job satisfaction, all those things are going up. And the interesting thing, the interesting contrast is that in tech is you see a lot of these layoffs happening. And I think the interesting thing is that also within tech, you have the UX, the HF people that maybe let go too, because it's harder to, we talked about it earlier with the return on investment, but yeah, that's, it's bad. The tech layoffs are bad. <laughs> that's the short answer. It's that, yeah, it's that, certainly when you compare to previous year, then yes, it's, it's not great. It might, it could just be an early year blip. It might be the fact that this resets what we're doing and then, and then move forward. But uh, we shall see. Just going through and seeing some more of these products that come out of CES. And whilst there's some really cool products out there, some products do make you wonder. So uh-huh. apparently there is now a, a toilet out there called the Numi 2.0 that utilizes e-ink within it. I'm almost scared. I'm almost scared to press the go button on the video to work out how the e-ink works. Should do a live reaction to this. What do we? Hang on. What? What is it called? Uh, the uh, the Numi two point Nord toilet. Dual flush smart toilet. Okay. Eight thousand dollars. Thousand six hundred dollars. It's snip. Okay, as low as seven hundred seventy nine dollars a month with a firm. So there's, there's that. What the? What is the? Okay, is it just? I'm gonna play. Hold on. What the? What is the hook here? What is? I'm looking at. It looks like a box with. It's just using the e ink concept to change the cut, change the decoration on the outside of the toilet. That's oh, disappointing. That I was expecting. Well, I don't know what I was expecting, but. That's disappointing. <laughs> that is disappointing. Hang on, I'm looking at some stats here with the with the intelligent toilet. We got built-in Amazon Alexa, hands-free That's operation, a- next level comfort with a bidet, uncompromising cleanliness, air dryer, deodorizing filter, comfort height. We have been, I think, I mentioned this before. We're going through a, a bathroom remodeling in our house at the moment, and some of the tech that we looked at. That you can now buy so smart toilets that do everything for you, or you just need to sit down and then everything else happens. It's brilliant. And then some of the other bits like smart mirrors and all this sort of stuff. There's certainly a lot more you can get in there to make your um, bathroom experience more amusing. Yeah. All right, let's address this question, and then I think we can wrap up here. By how much do you think large language model development is the cause of these layoffs? We did bring this up a little earlier. I think it's a large part of the reason this is also Preximo on Twitch I should say it's it's being attributed as one of the large reasons for for these tech layoffs is that a lot of these roles that are being eliminated can be done by AI although we hold a different view on that and the future with UX and human factors is that we're going to need to understand how humans integrate with AI and that's there's going to be a boom um Jacob Nielsen thinks in 2025, 
where there's going to be a need for professionals to understand that problem. And you need to start now to understand how AI is going to work in these technologies. So that's the short answer. We did talk a lot about this earlier on in the program. So if you want to go back and re-listen to that, you can. I think we'll go ahead and wrap there for the day. Since we're doing this new show format, I don't really have an outro, but... If you like this, we talked about a bunch of different things here from tech layoffs to CES. We've done CES coverage in the past. Go check out some of those episodes if you want to hear more on that. Comment with what you think of the new format. We're always here watching and watching all your comments come in. So you can always leave us a comment. If you want to leave us a voicemail on our website, let us know what you think of X, Y, and Z. What do you think of the tech layoffs? What do you think of CES? What tickled your fancy this year? You can always do that on our website, humanfactorscast.media. If you want to support the show, we have a nice little handy link right down here. Support us on Patreon. We have that. That helps with all the development costs of keeping the show up and running. Let's see. What else do I usually do, Barry? Leave us a five-star review, blah, blah, blah. Uh, tell your friends about us. Patreon. Patreon. Uh, I'm on social media. You're on social yeah, media. We're all on social media. Okay. Oh, 1202podcast. you want to plug that real quick? I'm going to podcast. Go and listen to it, 1202podcast.com. I might even get some episodes. In fact, we are. I have been doing a lot more organizing, and we've got people lined up for interviews. And I've also been, been playing with some of the short tools, AI-driven short tools, because some of them have improved considerably. So I've, I'm now starting to put some stuff out on TikTok in the preparation for some of these interviews coming out. So that's a long way around saying I haven't done that much yet. That's actually <laughs> There is definitely going to be some stuff. So watch your space. As for me, I've been Nick from whatever. Where to find me? Discord, social. We'll hang out, but that was it. That's the show. Oh, yeah, and uh, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft. These are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.